Hey everyone, welcome. We're your hosts, Wesley and Bree. And today we're going to share our stories and experiences as Christians of color. We think this type of conversation is needed, especially during today's time with the George Floyd protests happening around the world. And today we're going to start with Bree's story and how she grew up in the church. And we're just going to have this conversation. Thanks, Wesley. Um, yeah, and, and before I start, I would love to lay down a few disclaimers. One, we are speaking from our individual experiences as Christians from the Black and Vietnamese communities in the U.S. Um, so our experiences do not speak for everyone, uh, and we know that, so we don't want to, you know, assume arrogance there. And then, uh, two, we may disagree, me and Wesley, or us and the listeners, like, and that's okay. Um, we may accidentally offend, um, and that's okay too, because our goal is really to create a com- uncomfortable conversations for the sake of really being helpful, right? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. Um, and so we are talking about hard things and unearthing tension right now in the pursuit of what we hope to be biblical justice. Um, yeah, so that's our goal as young Christians of color. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so with that, I can start a little bit about me and my background growing up in the church. So um, mm-hmm. my first memories, my first memories are in actually a traditional black church. I, in Ohio, went to this church called Refreshing Springs Baptist. And like, I remember being really young and like having, they gave me like the praise flag and I got to like lead the children's choir, like walking down the aisle and we would sing, you know, some of these like more uh, like traditional gospel songs, if you will. So like mm-hmm. uh, Revelation 19.1 or uh, Total Praise, which if you're not familiar with those songs, they're like absolute bops. Uh, a lot of black folks who grew up in the church would know also Sunday service choir has like done some good covers. So yeah, that's like kind of my earliest memories, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I got to ask, are were the choirs just very energetic and upbeat? At least my image is just everyone dressed in purple, clapping, singing and dancing. <laughs> is that what a traditional black church looks like or I, I wouldn't say we got, you know, the purple robes and everything, but yeah, there's I mean, at at least in this point in time, like kind of, if I look at the whole arc of the different churches I've attended, uh, yeah, so that experience at Refreshing Springs, like worship was a lot more like charismatic, if you will, like, you know, like worship with your whole body, maybe you're dancing, maybe you're moving around a little bit, like, you know, I said we had a a praise flag, like that's not everywhere, (laughs) you know, like we don't have (laughs) praise flags everywhere. So um, yeah, to some degree, like, yeah, you know, worship is a little bit more, you know, celebratory at least like physically you can very much see it more like with your body like people moving their bodies or or even like you know if you're sad like there's just like a little bit more of like it feels a little more visceral um and yeah worship isn't just with your mouth it's like kind of with your whole self right um so that was kind of earliest experience and then we moved uh to a different country moved to switzerland and we apparently i don't even remember this we like went to this like international church so i have like no recollection don't know what that was like And I don't remember really like any black people when I lived abroad. So I doubt our experience was like, you know, a traditional black church. Right. Mm -hmm. And then came back, came back and um, we started going to like 
my family got more into like kind of like larger like mega church scene um which was like more so like predominantly white uh, like we moved neighborhoods um so on that one hand I was like starting to like you know yeah I get my first taste of these like like large predominantly white mega churches so like you know singing like the hill song stuff or like things like that um and like church leadership was pretty much white most of the people around me were white like that's kind of the idea and but at the same time I was going to this like private christian school um it was episcopalian school but at the same time it had a pretty decently sized like black community in the school so i remember like yeah like all my friends at this private christian school were black so like and we were and we also in that school we're singing these like gospel songs like our music director was a oh, black wow. man who like taught us like he taught us hand motions for total praise for like the Chris- the christmas choir concert oh, that's so, so cool yeah so we like still had half and half and it was so it was, it was still interesting and and cool but like i think starting to move away i think something that characterized a lot of my like faith story is actually that I did grow up in a lot of predominantly white spaces and what some people would call like traditional white evangelical spaces. Um, and I like to talk about that a lot more because, um, I think in some ways we've allowed like political arenas to like define like church groups. Um, and I think that's like what's happened with like quote unquote white evangelical spaces, but yeah, so grew up, um, so went to this Episcopalian school for a while did that and then um yeah stayed in kind of the mega church kind of area and then we moved to South Carolina again another predominantly white place and then my church still or my family rather um kind of still navigated toward more like traditionally white spaces even at church and like larger mega churches um and so that was again my story and yeah yeah so that's kind of where we were yeah so is there any reason why your family geared towards the white evangelical churches yeah, man, I don't even, I don't fully know. This probably sounds kind of shallow, but like, you know, I, one thing I think was a uh, drawing factor was like churches in that long, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. traditional black ch- services are like, <laughs> and that's like, if you only go to one, but you know, like if you're extra holy, like you go to Sunday school, you go to, you know, like you might go to another service, like, you know, mm-hmm. some like churches the day churches all of Sunday, right? Wow. And yeah. these mega churches, churches an hour and fifteen minutes. You can still make the football mm-hmm. game later, you know? Like yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean I actually don't fully know why my parents chose to do that, but as a mm-hmm. kid, that's what I, I guess I was like perceiving was like, I don't want to go to like those churches that last minimum three hours. I was like not mm-hmm. in, I also didn't know the Lord yeah. until I was like sixteen official like I would say like really. So yeah, I was not trying to stay in church for a really long time okay, um, yeah. yeah yeah so um then from there I actually went to a boarding school and within walking distance was this church again somehow again still find myself navigating and like kind of moving more towards like traditionally white spaces like that for some reason like I felt a lot of comfort I guess growing up in the server growing up in the suburbs growing up around a lot of white people like just in school and things like that um yeah, like, so then also that's what I sought out in church, I guess. Because um, there were some, like, traditional black churches near me. I just didn't go. Mm. Um, but luckily, like, the Lord can move and work anywhere and whenever he wants. Still working, you know, like, in me, uh, in that space. And, like, so I actually came to know the Lord at this church um, that, mm. yeah, was predominantly white. But, like, they just really loved Jesus, right? Like, so it wasn't, like, whiteness was not a barrier to them loving Jesus. Um, and actually, mm. my youth pastor at that church was black. 
Um, and to this day, he is, he is a person that like has most affected like my love of scripture, for example, like that man just like loved the Bible, like just like Mm. that Bible's like written on his heart. Like he's just like quoting verses left and right. Like just in a way that like a young, like a 16 year old watching someone like a faith leader love the word so much and love communing with the Lord like that so much, like, yeah, that characterized my faith a lot. Um, and yeah, this man, like actually present day, fast forward to, you know, when like things like Ahmaud Arbery and like George Floyd, these murders are happening and he, this man is like very vocal, but like, I really trust, I trust his condemnation of evil because I know he's so rooted in the Bible. Um, Mm. but yeah, so like different, maybe being in white spaces, but also having like black influence and like, I mean, always, always, I'm still a black woman. Right. So there's always still like Mm -hmm. my blackness is very present and nobody operates in a vacuum. Right. So like, of course my faith expression also is going to like see, you know, there's going to, you're going to see imprints on my faith of like, also, you know, my black experience as a black woman, no matter what. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So that was high school. Fast forward to New York again, navigating some more like white spaces, but I ended up studying abroad, um, in London, which is where I went you Wesley and our, (laughs) our small group, our connect group, if you remember, was like so diverse, extremely diverse, like most diverse place, most of most everyone was probably from a different continent. Yeah. Outside of yeah. Yeah. Different continent, different ethnic backgrounds, different languages. Like people are bilingual. I think, and what was cool was like the diversity of our group at Hillsong was not like a camp. It didn't feel like, oh, it's a campaign. Like, oh, the pastor can get up and say, like, we are doing a diversity initiative right now. We're going to make sure, you know, that all your groups look like a rainbow, like all these things. Like it, it, from the outside looking in, it felt effortless, honestly. Like if this just happened to be like, this was a yeah. church that was already like having a body that like strives to look like what the kingdom of heaven will look like. There's mm-hmm. like every nation and every tongue, and like every people group, like naturally the church was just starting to look like this. So of course our small groups and the way we did life was looking like this. Um, so I really loved that. And so when I came back to New York, I was like, man, no, I crave that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up settling now at the church I'm at right now called Renaissance. It's up in Harlem. Um, and it's a predominantly like predominantly a church of color, but I think we have like a pretty diverse mix, like kind of maybe a similar balance of Hillsong, right? Um, mm-hmm. so not, it's not like overwhelmingly, there's like no white people, there's plenty of white people, but it just, it's a church that I think reflects the neighborhood that it's in, which is Harlem, right? Harlem mm-hmm. is, um, heavily black area with lots of roots. And I think Renaissance wants to, acknowledge that we talk about being a multicultural church um but not Mm -hmm. multicultural in the sense where we just like I think um what our pastor said is that he doesn't want it to be like oh there's a lot of people of color that attend but we still like um kind of assimilate to a dominant culture but yeah Mm. yeah so how did renaissance church create that diversity especially within a predominantly black neighborhood that it became just like diverse of different colors I mean, well, one by virtue, Harlem is still, you know, predominantly black, but the neighborhood itself is also changing, right? Like you have gentrification, so you have mm-hmm. plenty of um, white folks moving in. Um, but then also like by virtue of it being New York, there's always just like different people groups around. So um, I think our church body really reflects like the neighborhood we're in. Like a lot of people who go to Renaissance live in this area. Um, and so, yeah, it just like reflects the population. Um, but then I also think, 
there are people who aren't, don't even live in Harlem, but like maybe around New York and they caught the vision of what Jordan is, is looking for is, yeah, we want our church body to, um, yeah, start to reflect the kingdom of heaven. Um, like our, even our church staff is like so diverse and I love it. Um, mm-hmm. I think people see that and they want to sit under teaching, right? They want to sit under, I, I love to sit under chief, teaching of like an African-American man. If I've never sat under teaching an African-American man before, cause that's a lot of people's story actually in the U S um, or like one of our pastors, um, like our lead pastor is black. Um, our children's ministry director, um, is a white woman, but our, and our, our worship director is actually a white dude, but like loves gospel. Wow. And then like our pastor of like community and one of the pastors who gives benedictions um, every week, like, um, is actually, um, Asian American. So you see wow. a lot of like diversity of leadership on stage. And I think people caught that vision of like, yeah, man, I want to sit under teaching of a, um, a diversity of voices and not simply just for diversity's sake, but because like, we want to, we want to know the Lord more. Um, and the Lord has a lot to say, um, through more than just like one specific type of person. That makes mm. sense. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, sure. That's so cool. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like, you know, where I'm at today. Uh, but again, like, I think I want to, you know, give a disclaimer, like a lot of my growing up experience was actually in like predominantly white spaces, right? So like, I'm still a black Christian, but my black Christianity might not look like what everyone thinks of when they hear like the black church in America, right? Like I didn't mm-hmm. grow up with the purple robes. Um, you know, like I, I didn't grow up in spaces where people spoke in tongues. Um, mm-hmm. and like, I didn't grow up in a lot of spaces where there was praise dance, but, um, at Renaissance, I'm starting also to see a little bit more of like that celebration and that like, kind of like my whole body's a part of this. And there's a little bit more like, I don't want to be offensive and say like room for the Holy spirit to move. Cause that's not, I don't even know if that's theologically sound, but like, you know what I'm saying? What I'm trying to say is, um, yeah, feeling freedom to like, if I'm leading worship on stage, like we dance sometimes, right. And we move our bodies a little bit more. Like you can raise your hands. You can, you can sing like not even words. Like you're just, you know, maybe like humming or like singing on a vowel because, uh, that's another offering to the Lord. And it doesn't have to be like this, like pre-written down prayer, um, which mm-hmm. I have been in spaces where it's a little bit more, you know, planned out and the liturgy is like more set like that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and nothing is, nothing is more valid or less valid. Um, but I think there are different cultural expressions, right. Of a biblical understanding of truth and faith and worship. So, yeah. mm. That's awesome. And where do you see your black Christian identity going forward? Like even as mm-hmm. far as when you would become a mother, where do you think that would take you? Oh, shoot. I haven't thought of that. Um, but where do I see I think, well, one, um, yeah, just parsing through one, I'm a theology nerd. Ha. So Mm -hmm. I also, I think one thing I want to do is like consciously seek out more voices of color, um, and theologians of color who have writings, um, that are, you know, theologically solid, um, but like wanting to hear more, yeah, more, more people who are talking about their relationship with the Lord or like what they have searched the scriptures and, and found by, um, you know, by the guiding of the Holy Spirit to be true, like what Bible, what the Lord has said in his word. Um, and I want to learn about like more, yeah, more folks who grew up in like more black traditions and even outside of that, because I think one thing I'm in, you know, like navigating like my blackness and um, being a Christian because my Christian identity, identity is superior to my black identity, but they're both true of me. Mm -hmm. I also want to learn about people who like their Christianity supersedes 
their ethnic identity, but their ethnic identity like plays out a little bit, right? In their faith. And like, maybe they, maybe they see attributes of God that are true, but because of their cultural background, they can see it more than I can see it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to read more like theologians who like come from different backgrounds. Um, and I think though, the caveat is, I think sometimes people are like, oh, I'm only going to read someone simply because they're black or simply because they're Latino, simply because they're um, Asian, which, well, that's not wise. Like I want to read somebody because they speak truth, but I think more people have truthful things to say than like just Southern white dudes, which is like traditionally what I read. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and because of that, I, I hope, you know, then, yeah, that'll affect everything going forward. Right. Like that'll affect the way I parent children, um, you know, in America, children of color. Like if I give, you know, birth biologically, my children will definitely be of color. <laughs> so how, <laughs> yeah. would I, how would I parent them? How would I love them? How would I teach them to love their neighbor? How would I teach them? Yeah. And those things. Yeah. Going off the double consciousness that he told me last time from W.B. Dubois of like, you present yourself in one way to a certain type of people as if like white people. And then you present yourself in a different way towards black people. How would you raise your children with this idea of double consciousness of a white society and your black identity? Yeah. Well, and, and like W.E.B. Du Bois was, I think, he was trying to say with double consciousness was also not necessarily that you have to conduct yourself differently, which, but like a lot of us do. Right. And that that's mm-hmm. often, they call it like, you know, code switching or like different, there's different language for it. I think what mm-hmm. he was getting at, at double consciousness was at least just understanding that different people are perceiving you differently. Like white people or the dominant culture is going to perceive you one way. And then you as a minority, the way you perceive wow. yourself and your, and your minority brothers and sisters perceive you is, is just, it's going to be different than the the majority culture but I mean like that's true right like and you hear this a lot right like black parents from a young age teach their kids like just different ways that you have to hold yourself so that you aren't misconstrued essentially Mm -hmm. by white people like you know there's a saying like you have to work twice as hard to get half as much or my mom's always telling my little brother like you know for example kids in the neighborhood like the little boys in the neighborhood growing up always wanted to ding dong ditch and my brother wanted to go along, right? Like, I mean, all his friends are white. He's not thinking about that. But like his friends want to go ding dong ditch and he wants to go do it because it's fun and it's shenanigans. And all my mom can see, you ding dong ditch somebody and then they just see a black person. They're not, not even a little black boy. They're not going to perceive you as a boy. They're going to perceive you as a man or a black person or something. Mm. They're going to see a black person running away from their property. And what they're going to assume is, well, if you're running, you're guilty of something. So what crime did you commit? You know, like they're, they're automatically going to assume different things about you than your white peers. Um, and that was like, just like the nature of parenting as a black person is just like, unfortunately telling your kids, like you don't get the benefit of the doubt a lot of the time. So navigate life accordingly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's so many things. Um, but I'm excited by the conversations happening, you know, what we're doing and then like what's happening now publicly is like there, there are more conversations being had and another disclaimer, you know, I think, uh, Wes and I talked about, you, you and I talked about Wesley is, um, that these conversations have been happening before we're doing this now. So we're not going to claim to be starting anything, uh, but we just want to be adding, right? Like we're at least going to try to reach the folks that we know we want to add to the conversation. 
not usurp mm-hmm. it, not claim anything, but just hopefully be helpful in unearthing yeah. tension in pursuit of biblical justice and peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah. wholeheartedly yeah. believe change happens at the local level. And yeah. so my goal with this is trying to reach out to people we know and impacting change that way through these types of mm-hmm. conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're so right, right? Like change is going to happen on a macro level. Like, yeah, we need to institute laws where like, it's just, it's virtually unthinkable that you would just like, you know, use deadly force on someone just because you perceive them to be more guilty because they're black. Like we, yeah, we need change on a macro level, but also I think you're right. Like the real change, like real, real quick societal lasting change happens. I would say, I call it like at the dinner table, right? Which sounds Mm. super trite and I, I don't want it to be trite and I don't want it to like, um, belittle any of the hard and beautiful work that people are doing. You know, like, I think there's real beauty in like peaceful processing and there's real beauty in like, you know, like civil action and civic duty. That's amazing. But Mm -hmm. on top of that, I don't think we like, none of these things are like only do this one thing. I think it's like a both. And it's like at the dinner Mm -hmm. table, like invite people over, have conversations with people who are different than you have conversations with people who are like you, but maybe you hold different viewpoints, right? Like, you know, yeah. Like this is kind of basic. Everyone's saying this, you know, but like when your friends say problematic stuff, you know, challenge them or at least ask them where that's coming from. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, if you love black people, have more black people over to your house, have more dinners that make, you know, make more black friends, like create more spaces where you and people of color are like in it together, communing, um, mm-hmm. because you love one another. Um, yeah. And don't just make it a, Oh shoot, there was another shooting. Let me just, let me text my friend of color to let them no. know, like, you know, be about it, you know, like mm-hmm. invite them over, love on them, be their actual friend. Um, don't just text yeah. them cause you feel bad for being a white person in today's age. <laughs> yeah. 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 And like, I'm envisioning this as just a resource for a lot of my friends who are at home, who are either neutral about these protests and these positions. And especially just coming from being an Asian American, mm-hmm. want to know where you fit on the black and white spectrum. And the thing is, Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. That's hard. So, I think it's a good segue now to go to my story. Yeah, um, I wanted I wanted you to like let let's lay it down because I know Wesley, I know nothing about the Asian American experience. Like that's ignorant on my part. Yeah. So tell me oh, about no you. Yeah, it is vastly different. And so the very unique thing is that the Vietnamese, we, my parents at least, came over since 1975 to the U.S because of the war, they left everything behind to create a new life there in search of new opportunities. And so my parents ended up in San Jose, which turned out to be one of the best spots where a lot of Vietnamese made their stops and they got lucky. It eventually became the Silicon Valley. It, everything's rich there. A lot (laughs) of the Vietnamese people are rich and San Jose became a city of minorities. Like 60% of the population are immigrants or people of color. And the rest, remaining 40% are whites. And it's pretty segregated too, just geographically that there are certain communities that like to stick with each other. But even then, because I went to a public school, everything intermingled pretty well. Like you just get such 
a rich, diverse exposure to so many different peoples. So not only do you get blacks and whites, or you get Vietnamese, Chinese, Korean, Mexican, Indian, Bangladesh, whatever, it just goes on. And I can actually count the number of black in my school years. That's how much of a majority we became. Wow. Wow. That's, that's crazy. And so now, cause that's, I just like, have never personally experienced that. Do you feel like in the presence of that diversity that y'all were actually all friends? Like y'all actually like knew each other and, and, and celebrated each other's cultural expression or it was more like, you know, you just kind of all present, but operating separately. It was an intermingling for sure. Like I'm thinking back to high school, not even with ethnicities, but with religions. So India is so diverse in terms of religion. You got Hinduism, Sikhism, Islam, and Jainism. I never met any Jainist people, but I remember in high school, I had some Muslim friends. And when they would do Ramadan, when Ramadan was over, they have this thing called Eid Mubarak, where you just feast. And so we recognize that and we celebrate with them. And so it's because we're in such close proximity, we get to see our differences and celebrate the differences in that way. And San Jose is beautiful, but I take pride in that too, especially whenever I travel. I love the diversity of the Bay Area, or at least in San Jose. That's one thing I'm super proud of. And going back to the Vietnamese church, at least. So it started because, um, well, at least with my branch of Christianity, it's called Christian and Missionary Alliance. And so I believe it started off from Pentecostalism, but the founder of our branch, A.B. Simpson, he didn't like the speaking in tongues and all that charismatic bits. They broke off. And so he became a missionary to Vietnam. And it's because of these missionaries that Vietnam got to know the gospel. And it's gotten to the point today where Christians are be- slowly becoming and exponentially growing in terms of the religion in Vietnam. And so at least my mom, she became a Christian. She took us to church. church. And so we grew up, me, my brother, and my two sisters grew up in a Christian household and went to a Vietnamese church. And so for the immigrant parents that came to the U.S. not knowing a lot of English, going to the one place where you knew other people that looked like you, spoke the same language as you, and did the same type of religion as you just made sense. And so that's what how the Vietnamese church started. But then there's the separation that comes. And this is where I come in as an ethnically Vietnamese person mm-hmm. born and raised in the U.S. Yeah. So I grew up speaking English and mm-hmm. learning different things in school like just having Western values of like individualism yeah. rather than the Vietnamese way of collectivism. Yeah. And it's funny because like, let's say language, for example, me and my mom, I would speak English to her just because my Vietnamese is terrible. 
and she would speak Vietnamese back to me, but we would both understand each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this language division is, I'd say, is actually what separates the Vietnamese church. Because you have mm. the older Vietnamese generation that immigrated from Vietnam. They speak one language, were raised with different values. And then you have us, which is people born now till like early millennials that grew up speaking English, are very individual, and kind of even grew up in a way that's very similar to the white church. And so because of this separation of language, it leads to values and something as simple as like raising your hands in church during worship, it can be taken as a distraction for the yeah. older Vietnamese people. Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Your, hand? your, your hands are in the way. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, individually, like, at least to the white church that I currently go to now in San Diego, how my pastor explains it is because we are embodied souls and soul-filled bodies, the way our body reacts, our soul also reacts. And so here's one explanation I'm taught from a white church where if you raise your hands, you individually are praising God, but mm -hmm. collectively you are blocking someone else's view or experience mm -hmm. from connecting with God. Yeah. And so growing up, we had that division of which yeah. value do I go to? And for me individually, <laughs> I took the individual route. <laughs> I, yeah. I chose a Christian college because my mentors went to Christian colleges. They were a year or two above me. They went to primarily white Christian private school. I went to a public school, but I was kind of aimless. And so applied to Christian colleges, one of which was Point Loma. And like I want I should have gone to the ones that my mentors went, which were Westmont College and Wheaton College. But I figured mm -hmm. I don't know anyone in Point Loma, looks super nice. Let's just send it. And so, fueled by individualism, I went yeah. there to start my new life. Against <laughs> I'm my parents, hearing a theme. Yeah. Against my parents' uh, will, too, because they prefer their kids to stay at home in San Jose because it's such a super nice area. Like, my dad got lucky working at a startup and got a lot of stock, and the startup went public. And so, he made so much money. And I lived upper middle class. And, but I just felt called individually by God to start and create a new life in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And so against my parents' will, I did that. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time I interacted with a ton of white people. Because Point Loma is filled, like, it's 70% white. But I mean, yeah. during my time there... I didn't face too much oppression or racism or whatever. And like, I can only think of one kind of racist like comment, which was when I was a freshman, there was a senior white Christian dude. And he's like, cause we're the same major and we were talking about the classes you're taking. And I was, I told him I was going to take accounting next year. And he's like, 
oh yeah, dude, you're going to do so well in that. I was like, why? He's like, dude, because you're Asian, you're good at numbers. And so I was so like shocked he said that, that yeah. I couldn't like, like, I was thinking like, did you really say that? I didn't know how to like comprehend because like I couldn't even believe it was real. And like people thought that way too. Yeah. But that was like the only type of racism, discrimination I faced. And so there were a lot of white churches in the area because I live in the Point Loma area of San Diego to this day too. And it's just predominantly the rich white area. Mm-hmm. And even the church I go to right now is super white. I so I I want to because I I sense some parallels but also some differences like in our experiences and I want to know are there things that you you'd say like oh you know people have this assumption as like you know the typical Vietnamese American experience growing up in church right like you know people have the the thoughts of what it is to be black in church in America with the gospel etc. Are there things that people assume about you? because you're Vietnamese and Christian, that actually weren't true of your upbringing? Well, at least in Point Loma, it wasn't that way, just because no one probably knew what a Vietnamese person was. I was probably <laughs> the first Vietnamese people, person that people actually met. But going back to the Vietnamese community I was a part of, and so I'll give an instance of like our annual conference. So we call it Hoi Dam, which is the Vietnamese Christian and Missionary Alliance conference where everyone part of that branch across the U.S. come together to Orange County and just have these Christian conferences, have these workshops about Christ and get together and just hang out. And it was just a huge gathering of Vietnamese people. And of course, even in this conference, it's separated by language. You have the Vietnamese service, for people who understand Vietnamese and the English service, people understand English. And like, at least on the English side, it felt very white evangelical. Like the worship leader would probably be wearing skinny jeans and a wide brimmed hat, that type <laughs> of thing. And we'd play very contemporary music, contemporary white music, a lot of Hillsong, Phil Wickham, just all which these. let's say Phil Wickham slaps y'all listeners okay I, I stand some Phil Wickham no knock to him but he is white just saying so yes. the church I go to in San Diego his brother is our pastor <laughs> that's funny Shout out Phil and Evan. <laughs> yeah that's funny. funny yeah so my experience um, was a little uh, different per se okay okay I would love to, like, I want to hear kind of our take, because so we've kind of talked about, you know, we've skirted around the topic of, like, white evangelicalism or white evangelicals. I feel like everyone's talking about that. Let's lay the groundwork. Like, what is your understanding? Like, what is what does that mean? When you say white evangelical, what does that mean to you? I think of it as the most mainstream form of Christianity today that attracts a young population. That's okay. what I think. Where... It plays contemporary music, contemporary Christian music in particular, um, predominantly white population, Mm -hmm. and just the cultures of these 
big churches impacting the cultures of small churches, like how mm -hmm. Hillsong, just the look of a Hillsong person mm -hmm. is impacting someone's dress in a smaller church. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I think of a white evangelical is it's, it's weird to say, but they're the standard setters. Just mm -hmm. because they're the most mainstream ones. So that's how everyone thinks church should look like. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think okay. white evangelical church should look like or it is? Yeah. Man, I think <laughs> I asked it because I was like, ooh, it's just so loaded, that question. Because yeah. I feel like everybody, everybody talks about white evangelical, but we don't like, you know, define it. I feel like yeah. one, so like the, the term evangelical itself, I think really rose to prominence more so in the 20th century. Um, and I think there were a lot of like, uh, predominant faith leaders uh, in the U.S. definitely. Um, mm -hmm. Also, a lot, a lot of them were white, right? Like, mm -hmm. wanted to, I think, like reaffirm some church values that I think they saw slipping, right? Like, I think there were starting to be some like divisions and schisms in the church of like what people thought about, you know, the authority of Scripture and what is, you know, God breathed or divinely inspired and inerrant versus, oh, it's errant and like, um, you know, affirming like the bodily resurrection of Jesus and like all these things. So like, I think evangelical first started as like, just a really like solely a theological term, right? Like it was just supposed to basically be like affirming of like you, what you and I and most Christians would affirm about just like the, the basic principles of like what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Like what, what we believe about his word, about the resurrection, about the cross, about sin, about redemption, about grace. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think later on, especially like, fast forward to the 2000s and you see like starts like these like large political shifts, right? Like you see like a lot of divisive widening, especially like let's go there with the election of Trump. Right. And I think a lot of like, not, not even religious, but like just general political polls wanted to see like, who are these people voting for so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so? and they found that a lot of these people who identified there are people in America who identified as evangelicals who were like voting for Trump. Also, a lot of these people were white. I feel like if you ask most of those people what evangelical means, they wouldn't have the same definition of what those folks back in like the 20th century were thinking. I think there's yeah. a lot of people who like, you know, tick the box of being like evangelical and Trump supporter. And like, so that it became, I think in, in a lot of discussions, it became this like political group, right? Mm -hmm. When, mm -hmm. And then it became this like political group that's like predominantly white. So there's that. And then, yeah, and there's also then another like area or another added layer that you're talking about that's like, you know, like the mainstream, like hip, like the, like the hip Christians, they like look cool, like dress cool. They got a lit Instagram, you know, they got the Chelsea boots, the cool hat, the ripped jeans. Yeah. Uh, and like, you know, can quote like a really solid scripture that like really applies to what you're going through right now. Um, so I see that, uh, I see that. Yeah. When we talk about, those are all the things I bring to the table <laughs> when I think about quote unquote white evangelicalism. But I do want to do the caveat of like, if we're just talking about the strictly theological term, meaning like just affirming traditional beliefs about the Bible and about God, um, mm -hmm. then Yeah then yeah, like evangelical is a fine term, right? I don't, I'm not married to the term. I don't need it though. Like those things are true of the Lord and of scripture, whether we give a label or not, but 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I'm going to shift my definition more towards you too. And you don't have to remember, we can disagree. Yeah. <laughs> but my mind just changed. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So I want to jump back to like the tension that I have between mm-hmm. my American identity and Vietnamese identity and mm-hmm. Vietnamese American identity. Yeah. And it's the tension I'm always going to have facing forward too. Like, mm. what does that look like? Mm. And during this past year, I was listening to Lil Wayne and one of his lyrics was like, I'm living the American dream. I got foreign everything. And that just hit me. Like, the American dream, at least what my father chased, is literally that. It's chasing after, like, the house, the white picket fence, and getting a good house, good family, and then that's it. But it's very ironic that using that lyric I just mentioned, that how Americans flaunt or flaunt their wealthy status is through foreign objects yeah foreign clothes foreign cars foreign spouses and so like even for me wearing clothes that i know is made from fast fashion like our success is dependent on the exploitation of others like amazon's Mm. really big example of how Jeff Bezos is on track to become the world's first billionaire by 2026. Trillionaire, and yeah. Trillionaire. And yeah. the Amazon warehouse workers are probably equally working as hard as Jeff Bezos, if not more, and are getting yeah. paid peanuts and are in terrible living conditions or working conditions, probably even terrible living conditions too with the peanuts he gives them. Yeah. And like the American dream, it's through exploitation of others. Yeah. Ooh, hot take. Tell them, Wesley. Tell them. Yeah. Like it's dependent on outsourcing. It's America is dependent on slavery. It was built off of African slavery, like economically. Mm-hmm. And now it's just in a different form through outsourcing. Yeah. Through paying peanuts to people in Bangladesh, Vietnam, Mexico, so that you can capitalize and make profits off of that. And so like, even for me, like I'm super entrepreneurial, super business minded. I want to be a billionaire by 25 or millionaire, but I have that ethical concern of is everything I'm doing self-made? Am I really self-made and not exploiting others? And that's the irony of it. Like the irony of the American dream is can you be self-made and proud to be an American without exploiting others? Which I think is super hard. Like even just for us people, just middle-class people, our clothes are dependent on China and the materials we have were so dependent on China. And it's just difficult. That's the tension I'm facing. Yeah. I mean, I think, I honestly think that the, to be purely self-made, I think that's like, 
I don't think that's possible, you know, because we don't like, we don't live in a vacuum. We don't operate in a vacuum. Right. So like mm-hmm. even, you know, me achieving the work I need to get done, like I need a computer. So whoever made my computer, like I can achieve what I can achieve because of somebody who worked hard enough to build my computer. Right. Or even mm-hmm. like, I think there's also a lot of shift in conversation of we're talking about, you know, a lot of the ways that we get our resources, especially in America to make some of the products that we have are like unethical grounds, right? Like, um, like I think it's the element is called Coltan. Um, and it's, it's mm-hmm. essential in the, in the making of our cell phones, right? Especially the iPhone, our oh, smartphones. Wow. Um, and it's like, and, and this element, uh, is particularly available in a lot of, uh, some some parts of the continent of Africa. I admit my ignorance because I can't tell you exactly which countries. Um, but in learning a, a little teeny part of that, like it sparks some like civil actually unrest because people are like fighting over the mining of these materials in order, you know, to like make money. And, but it, we need it, quote unquote, need it for like our smartphones and our smartphone obsession. So like even honestly, like I have to think second guess, like every time I send a text or do anything on this phone, like, what did it take for me to get this phone? Because I think there actually, there's a little bit more blood on my hands than I want to admit. Um, mm. That took a dark turn. But I, all that to say, like, I really, I actually really don't believe, hot take, I think it's a myth that you can be self-made. Hot take. Uh, I know some people would disagree. And I that doesn't discredit that there's like a lot of hard work done. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes of like, uh, that we don't even know about that like people have put in work for us to get where we are. Yeah. And like, I value people like Elon Musk, for example, for Tesla mm-hmm. and SpaceX, how he truly prides in being an American made. So with SpaceX, he saw how NASA was buying these rockets from Russia that were from the 1960s, cost them $300 million and realized he can make his own using his own materials for just about $20 million. And very recently, they launched the first humans from a private company onto the ISS. And that's at least my perspective of the American dream, which is to be proud of what we've done and not exploiting or being dependent on someone else. And that's what I want to do. And that's one of my goals, especially just because I'm motivated because my father left, my father and mother left Vietnam with, with nothing. They left everything behind so that I can have a better future, which I already do now at 23 years old. And now I'm hungry to repay them back for all the sacrifices that they've made. And that's the dilemma I face of being an American is what does that truly look like? Am I like, is being an American, being self-made, being prideful of our own creation? And especially when it comes to like, I'm also thinking of it being a land of refuge as well, of just welcoming different cultures and ethnicities. I'm also stepping on some immigration lines as well. Mm -hmm. But like within my own American identity, that's what I'm facing and being challenged with is what does an American truly look like, especially as an American Christian? Yeah, man, I have so many questions and I, and I love that you kind of also want to parse through 
you know, being an American Christian, because I think, I don't feel like we have enough conversations about like, if we're going to talk about this American dream, um, if there are people, you know, like, you know, that want to support the American dream and that narrative, like what, how, how do you see God as sovereign over all of that? Um, or where do you see God in that, in the American dream? My question for you. With the stereotypical American dream, I don't think God exists in that dream. With the white picket fence house, with outsourcing, and it's just hard to honor God with what you've done. And mm-hmm. Yahweh actually calls us to sell everything, so, or Jesus tells us to sell everything and leave everything behind and serve him. But we're, we as Americans are in this position where we're too comfortable and we have too many things to let go and follow his call. Mm-hmm. And that's the struggle I face as an American Christian, especially when it comes to materialism. I definitely have way too many things in my house. And I think like I'm a minimalist, but there's no way I'm a minimalist. And <laughs> that it definitely hinders my relationship and walk with God. Yeah. So do you think there's a way that you as a believer, as a follower of Jesus can be faithful to the life that the Lord has called you while still pursuing this like idea of being self-made? Yes. I think being created in the image of God, we're called to create. And so, especially with content like this, for example, I want this to be something beautiful, to lift up voices and to just empower people. Yeah. And like, I eventually think that Hopefully, if we kept continuing this or my other podcast or whatever door that opens to, that through these, through loving people, empowering people, that the door, or I will eventually have my American dream that also fits in within the call that Jesus has called for us to serve others. And so Mm -hmm. I do think it's possible. It's not just going to look bougie yeah so maybe being self-made if self-made means getting to a place where i can also bring elevate other voices and like bring people up with me i guess is Mm -hmm. what i'm hearing you correct me if i'm wrong in what i'm hearing from you yeah so if god had a currency it would be love and Mm -hmm. he would just look at how we've loved others and I think that's where the American dream should be is where does our love of others point us to? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think, and then maybe this, this is also, I think where we're, we're bringing our like cultural readings on and like, just maybe also not even like, you know, superimposing cultural readings, but like where I come from culturally causes me to like see maybe more attributes of God emphasized over others and and you vice versa. Cause Mm -hmm. I think for me, I was always like, Oh yeah, the American dream and like being self-made, like doesn't make sense. Um, knowing God, right. Like I'm Mm -hmm. like the concept of privilege 
And like, it makes so much sense to me. Pri- the concept of privilege and, and of grace, like always made a lot of sense to me. Like I remember when I first went to college, everyone was like talking about white privilege and like calling it out. And at NYU, that was a super big thing. And like, it made so much sense to me, right? Because if God gives humans grace, which grace, the definition of grace is unmerited favor, is that not what privilege is? Like the com- the privilege conversation made so much sense to me. So I was like, of course, like people aren't self-made because people, different folks, the way our world works, like have gotten unmerited favor in different ways. Unfortunately, like where God um, is completely just and fair and, and dishing out his love and unmerited favor on his people, the world has attributed unmerited favor to people based on maybe skin color or uh, economic class or religion or all these other, the host of different categories. Mm. And so I, on the flip side, hopefully this is like respectful disagreement, but it always made sense to me like that, like, uh, yeah, of course you can't be self-made because nobody is like starting from, similar levels of like making it um and different people have had different ways of like whether the system helped you because maybe it was like quote unquote rigged in your favor right or you got help from other people or or you made success on these different things i think honestly that we do agree because what we're saying i think if we have to define success success is actually like success in like accomplishing the mission of jesus which is like how can i love other people well how can I like celebrate others and like lift up voices um and essentially mm-hmm. like celebrate the dignity and the imago dei or the image bearer or the equal value and worth of all people it's so, like I guess our definition of success is the same maybe just like <laughs> we're picking different language I don't know uh, I think so but yeah too. yeah if I had to put it in my words I'd say we are privileged with the power that the sp- of the gifts of the spirit has given us and it just all depends on how we use these certain gifts that some worldly may look more quote unquote successful, like career wise, I guess, but only God can see the true success of our love for other people. But it's with what we do with those gifts, which will decide upon our success. Yeah. And it's also like by his power anyway. So it's like the success or whatever that we achieve is like still even by his grace. It's just, oh man, the gospel, dude, it's so heavy and like so hard to comprehend, but like so beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. We'll come back to that every time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I did have uh, another question for you. For um, and because we kind of, I guess like a little bit brought up the concept of Imago Dei which for those of the people who are listening that maybe don't know what that is, that's like the Latin for um, like image bearer, or like image of God. So uh, all humans, the Bible teaches are made in the image of God. So we are image bearers. So what does it mean to be created the image of God to Wesley Tran? Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you? What I think is just a mirror of when people look at us, they see, Jesus Christ. That's what mm-hmm. I think bearing the image of God looks like. And I think especially like, well, not just bearing Jesus Christ, but also mm-hmm. bearing the qualities of the Holy Spirit, the, bearing the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., And uh, reflecting Yahweh himself too as the creator. 
So we have those three persons that we're reflecting off of, of the creator, we're called to reflect, or called to create, and rule over this earth too. And Holy Spirit, how we interact with others, how we love others. And Jesus, how another way of loving others, because he himself too was empowered by the Spirit. And eventually, when we get to this new garden city at the end of Revelation, we are still going to embody that. We're going to embody all the qualities of Jesus, Holy Spirit, and Yahweh. And people, we want to get to the point where people confuse us for Jesus or all of God. And so that's my definition of bearing the image of God. Yeah. Nice. So tell us yours. Yeah. I think uh, Brie Bird, uh, when I think of being an image bearer, I think first and foremost, I think, yeah, a lot of what I hear is just how we, we equally, um, we have equal value in the eyes of the Lord, like all different people. Um, I think... I would say probably a lot of, uh, a lot of like, I think African-Americans might see that, or like that might be one of the first things they think of when they hear image bearer, because I think, and this is, I think a cultural reading into it is a lot of public discourse for a while was that like black people are lesser. Right. So of course we love it when there's theological clear backing that says, no, 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 you are not lesser. In fact, you are equally bearing the image of God as your white brothers and sisters. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of, when I first hear image bearers, like equal value, equal worth. And then if that's true of me, and I'm so, I'm so glad that's true of me because the cultural narrative for a long time was not that that was true of me. Now I, I feel especially compelled to affirm that in ever, as many people as I can. So part of my duty is, as an image bearer and a follower of Jesus is then to go and not, I'm not bestowing dignity and I'm not bestowing, you know, worth on people because God has already done that. But I am, it is my job to hate, remind them, Hey, God actually already uh, imputed the righteousness of Jesus on you. God actually already sees your value and your worth. He created you in his image. I'm not giving you that value. He did, but I just get to remind you that that's true. Mm. You just get to uh, hopefully if, if no one has told you today, like to affirm that in you, um, so that's, I think, one of the ways, like, being an image bearer, recognizing that in myself, but, and also, like, the power of that truth and hopefully sharing that with other people who knew it but maybe forgot it or never knew that. Because um, that's a truth that God spoke already over you a long time ago. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's yeah, also so many other implications, but that's, yeah, that's the, the top one, top one for image bearer. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. And I think it's just super interesting for me when I think of the Christian identity and self-worth, I think of a child of God. And mm. when I hear child of God, I instantly connect the word identity to it and not mm -hmm. image of God, at least when you hear the word. And so when I hear child of God, like the sentence, he looks at us in our brokenness and loves us in that brokenness and would even die for us. That's mm -hmm. what gives us value and worth for me and so especially in whenever i have dark times i come back to this phrase and just remind myself of my identity as a child of god and not so much as an image of god or that could be both and synonymous too of 
just like God loved me to the point of death, even in my brokenness, even when I failed him. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I think, um, yeah, because child of God is also really powerful verbiage that we're given. You know, God gave that to us through the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. But even then, I think I've heard people twist that. I can't even, man, I got to do some research after this. We can put it in the show notes or something. Um, but there was this church leader. Um, I'm not even going to quote like what denomination or whatever. I'll, I'll get that information to you later. Ha ha ha. But okay. <laughs> he was in an effort, like he was actually ahead in his day of, uh, in terms of like who, how he was viewing, um, black Christians. And also I think in talking about missionary work, um, on continental Africa, he was essentially saying that, uh, black people, they are my brother, but they are my junior brother is what he said. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. so even like a twisting of like this, like family of God, child of God language. Mm. Um, so, but that's, that's not to say like that actually, we know, we definitely know that what he said was not true. Um, but I think that might be why as like a black Christian, I maybe ascribe, yeah, self-worth and, and dignity, um, and value in image of God. Cause it's like, nobody is challenging the value of God. So if God says wow. that I have, if I'm his image bearer, nobody can be like, oh, you're his junior image bearer to me, the white person, like nobody was challenging that but but hearing yeah some rhetoric of like you know yeah my the black the black man is my brother but he's my junior brother or the african is my brother but he's my junior brother yeah yeah that's so interesting yeah yeah i love this i love how you have a different cultural perspective on what i thought was just uh universal theology but your identity is rooted in that concept of image of god which is so, or at least you have a different perspective of a child of God too. And that's just so interesting. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's important that we talk about these things so we can start to like, we can go back, you know, to the Bible and see like how much of my faith is like just rooted in the Bible. And then how much of it is, is my cultural reading into it? You know, like how much of my faith is American Christianity versus like just what Jesus said in the Bible. Um, and not that you can't like process anything in, uh, outside of it, like in a vacuum. Right. So like, you're always going to read your cultural narrative, um, onto your faith, but like how much of that can we like try to strip away just so that we don't start to like think, especially what the American church has been guilty of is equating some of our cultural expressions of biblical truth as biblical truth. Right. So like Christianity has to look this specific way. Um, to the point where, yeah, you've like, quote unquote, othered voices like around the world where there's like very earnest, true, biblical faith worship happening, but it doesn't look like American Christianity, but because we're so enthralled with American Christianity, we're like, can't see that there's like validity in like <laughs> other ways, you know, other ways of worshiping Jesus. Yeah. Um, that's not yeah, to say we, totally you know, we don't have to go off the deep end. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, at least the church I go to, it's, like, a medium-sized church that's, like, 800 people, big enough to get lost in, but small enough to still see the same faces every week. <laughs> and it's literally right next to a mega church, mm-hmm. And it's just so interesting because, like, sometimes you get the people from the mega church into our church, just exploring different churches, and they'll say, yeah, I'm from the church over there. And you get this negative stigma of, you're from there 
-hmm. it's just because like oh you're different you go there and like these are our brothers and sisters and we Mm -hmm. shouldn't be thinking or talking to them that way so not even on the lines of like skin color we're creating separation through tiny differences in our branches yeah man like there's just differences uh i'll even talk about a small difference that i like loved and i'm so excited i got to uh, see this like so I we've talked before like when I lived uh, in Bogota Colombia and every time I prayed um, with some of the like uh, more like kind of like middle-aged to older uh, Colombian women of the church they always start their prayers their prayers papito dios meaning like it's more of like a term of endearment like daddy god um which is like different right like saying yeah. like or even uh, when I came to faith I grew up in the you know the cultural South saying, Hey God, like I started prayers, like, Hey God, it was super mm-hmm. casual. And then I moved up to New York and I had friends who grew up in like more new England, traditional, like more buttoned up Christian spaces. And they're like, you talking to a friend? Like you say, Hey God, like you, they start prayers off like father God or like dear father. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's just different ways of addre- even addressing God, starting with prayer of like how casual, how comfortable you feel around him. So there's different interesting things. Yeah, I want to go off of that. And like, I've heard an American say, dear daddy God, to start off a prayer. <laughs> threw me off just because of the <laughs> connotation behind a female saying daddy. <laughs> and yeah, I just thought that was funny. But like one of the books I absolutely love is called God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. And in that book, he invites us to know God the Father, Yahweh. And so he talks about how the Hebrews, they didn't want to mess around with the third commandment of misusing God's name. And they're so, they're like, you know, you can't misuse his name if you don't use it at all. And so they switched it to Lord, or I believe Adonai in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And so that was their reasoning behind it. But what John Mark Comer calls us to do is invite us into a personal relationship with the father of Yahweh. And so he says the equivalent of only, and I repeat, only calling God the father of Lord is like calling your spouse the wife or the hubby and not by their actual name. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So this entire book just invites us into the personal relationship of the father because he sometimes forgotten sometimes looks distant but in reality he's not and so i've made it my own personal goal to say the name yahweh even more just because he wants that friendship level with us even though it's like a fatherly relationship there is a friendship level between the father as well that we often sometimes just neglect oh man that's good. I think, and, and sometimes we can like pick up on that. Yeah. When we just like get these little peeks into how other people worship, you know, like mm-hmm. it like awakens in us or like opens our eyes to like truths we did know about God, but like maybe have been downplayed or just like aren't as emphasized either in our specific church or like in our cultural context or things like that. Um, and only because you said that, like I've been listening to uh, this South African worship group called We Will Worship they're lit you should check them out but they have a song called Yahweh we're like pretty much they just sing the different names of God for the whole song it's like pretty repetitive which 
is pretty common in a lot of like um, uh, black and black diaspora forms of worship is a little bit more like here's one solid truth and we're just going to sing that line over and over again until it's like written on our hearts, right? So a lot of the songs are not complex, not because we can't process complex things, but sometimes the heart needs to hear it a thousand times before it gets it, right? So they sing like Yahweh Adonai, Yahweh El Shaddai, um, just like over and over again. And it's beautiful. Or yeah, they just, they have really cool, there's some really cool songs, I'm gonna check it out. And they're not afraid, they, they mix between Zulu and English. Um, so they're not afraid of their roots, you know, as South Africans, but also, you know, they're bilingual. So they, yeah, they sing in multiple languages. So it's just really cool. And, and I learn more about God by listening to the way other people worship him. Wow. That is so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, uh, you got any recommendations? Worship? I, I said when you got to get any worship recommendations for me. Oh, this is going to be uh, a little tough because I actually don't listen to a lot of worship music. <laughs> oh, shoot. Oh, shoot. Okay, you're, you're like a silent, quiet time guy. So here's my thing with contemporary Christian music and worship music. At least with contemporary Christian music, I don't like how there's a formula of what Christian music should be. Sure. I truly, using the image of God, I really believe that whatever we create is automatically a reflection of God if it's beautiful. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. there's some downright blasphemous stuff. Yeah. But then, like, let's say a painting, like the Starry Night from Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. Like, that, if you see it in person, is just so beautiful, seeing all the different textures and colors. And that is equivalent to God making a waterfall in Yosemite Valley. Yeah. In my opinion. And so mm-hmm. this is my view of art is beautiful things are reflective of God's creation, simply put. Mm-hmm. But contemporary Christian music, guitar solos are bad. We don't want rapping unless you're a Christian rapper. And You don't have to. You, you don't have to. Whatever, you, whatever music you like, doesn't have to be contemporary Christian. Whatever type of music mm-hmm. you enjoy or not. Maybe you don't like music, mm-hmm. Wesley. I am a heavy music person. And, okay. I'm, and I'm also a Kanye West stan. And so using my <laughs> definition of at least work, art, in within the Christian perspective, even things of I Am A God in his Jesus album looks beautiful when you compare it to Jesus as King. Because if you look at his entire discography of how he pretty much went downhill Like, his life is so reflective of King Nebuchadnezzar, of being a king of of the world, and then turning into some beastly state. He had bipolarism, so he kind of became beastly, but then came to know Yahweh and is reflecting that in his messages, in his songs. And so even with songs that turn from I Am a God and Black Skinhead can be flipped upside down into something beautiful. Like King David, he murdered someone, but eventually in Hebrews is listed in the Faith Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And as blasphemous as I am a God is, it can be used to turn into something beautiful. Yeah. Okay, I see it. Like taking his whole, you take his whole discography as one giant work 
then you Mm -hmm. can see the arc of like really like God's redemption, right? Like God's pursuit, like, you know, you can run from the Lord, but like, if he has your heart, he has your heart. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and that, it makes it that much more powerful to see someone go from, I am a God to there's only God and he's definitely, there's only one God and he's definitely not me. It's actually Jesus. He's the King. It's more powerful to see (laughs) that change. Yeah, and I, I got to you. As an example because he plays around with Jesus a lot. Like his first single being Jesus Walks. Yep, yep, yep. And then goes into the limelight, flashing lights and all of the lights, goes downhill after his mother dies to Jesus, mm-hmm. I am a God. Mm-hmm. But then 2016 comes, plays around with gospel and God through ultralight beam. Mm-hmm. Life of Pablo. Mm-hmm. Bipolarism happens in 2017 with Ye, and then back to Jesus as King of just the ultimate submission. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at everything within that context, I think it's just beautiful. It's a reflection of God in us, God in mm-hmm. a human's life. Mm-hmm. Except this time, it's just through art. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So you hear that everyone listened to all of Kanye's entire discography uh, and watch, basically, you could say like, you know, some similarities to Nebuchadnezzar, Life of Paul. There's lots there. Yeah. And it's just like a reflection of us, how through our darkest times, God can create something beautiful. And this is where I think image God comes to play is creating, creating beautiful things. Nice. That's that was like that's poetic, man. You should give a TED talk. You should make a podcast. Ooh, already. Hey. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bree, for sharing your story on what it was like growing up as a Black American Christian and growing up in white evangelical churches to now. Thank you for sharing your story of how it was. Yeah, man, and like I mean, thanks equally to you, you know, for sharing your experiences growing up in the Vietnamese church and also like wanting to be the catalyst, like to, to start this conversation. I'm excited for uh, the different folks we'll get to talk to coming up um, because there's so much more to be said about being a Christian of color in America um, and like so many other problems, right. That arise. So I'm excited to dive deeper with you. Yeah. Same. So yeah, next, next week or whatever, we're going to try and get some guests on create more dialogues on what it means to be Christian in America, no matter what race you are. Can't wait.